0: Hi, this is AJ Langley, and before this week's episode, I wanted to include a warning that we are discussing several very uncomfortable and disturbing subjects. This week's episode includes discussions of ableism, including a lot of ableistic language, sexual abuse, as well as very graphic descriptions of images of torture victims. Please feel free to skip this episode if you are not in a place to hear discussion about these topics. We understand that these topics will be disturbing to pretty much everyone who listens to them and wanted to give you a heads up before the episode starts. Thanks for listening and on with the episode. Welcome to My Favorite Mystic, a podcast about the weird and wonderful world of mysticism. I'm A.J. Langley, and today I'm joined by W. Ezekiel Gawkin. He's a researcher working at the intersection of post-Kantian idealism, critical theory, and medieval mysticism. He is particularly interested in how these traditions shape modern and contemporary accounts of subjectivity, historicity, religion, and race. Zeke, thank you so much for being here.
1: Hi, A.J. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here today.
0: Well, it is a pleasure to have you. Now, you've joined us today to speak about George Bataille.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: But before we get into him, let's talk a little bit more about you. As I just mentioned in your introduction, your research focuses on an intersection of several different topics, but how did you come to mysticism?
1: So my path to the academic study of mysticism, I think like probably a lot of your guests is a fairly oblique one. I certainly didn't know that's what I would end up studying. I mean, first of all, I wasn't even sure I wanted to go to college. I wasn't totally sold on the idea. And When I got there, I ended up studying English lit and theater for a while. But I finally sort of got into religion and philosophy. And a big reason for that was because of a course I took in the history of Christianity with Dr. W. David Hall, who would become my advisor. And I think the cool thing for me was I had grown up sort of surrounded by all these ideas from Christianity and sort of inherited a sense that what religion in general did and what Christianity specifically did was sort of resist historical change, was cut through the clutter of history, and this course showed me that I was wrong about that. <laughs> the historical reality of religion was really fascinating and really complex and that in the case of Christianity This was not something that had just fallen out of the sky, for lack of a less provocative metaphor. This was something that had a history. There were men and women with agendas, in particular times and places, that shaped it and pushed it in the direction that it went. You know, it's possible to imagine that it could have maybe ended up differently. And in fact, the history of Christianity, I realized, was still being written because the Iraq War had begun. I think it was really clear for anybody. Wherever you came down on that conflict, it really was incontrovertible that the logic of Christian salvation and Christendom was being leveraged to extend the American empire. That was plain as day to anybody. And so it was clear that that history was alive, right? Like the ideas that drove Christianity forward were still in play, were still up for grabs in a way. And it wasn't clear what the future of Christianity would be either. So this got me interested in religions just more generally. I spent a lot of time studying Tillich and Mircea Eliade during those years, and they got me thinking about, I guess, what we might call existential concerns. I was much more interested in how religions figured human finitude, the irreversibility of time, the experience of anxiety, anguish. And so over time, those ideas and those thinkers led me to a confrontation with. Phenomenology and classical German philosophy, especially German idealism, but also Romanticism and the works of Kant. And those were all people I ended up studying while I was at the University of Chicago Divinity School for my master's and then my PhD. And while I was there, nearly all of the people that I was reading in depth Hegel, Fichte, Novalis, Heidegger, Derrida, Georges Bataille these were people who were drawing on the mystical tradition in complex and creative ways that challenged straightforward historicist readings of those traditions. Those are people who are reading mystics like there's something potentially alive and kinetic there that can be made active again, that can be used in constructive and critical ways. So for a long time, I sort of tacitly accepted the Kantian polemic against mysticism. That began to change for me when I read Georges Bataille under the tutelage of Ryan Coyne at the University of Chicago. And it was then that I began to see that the mystical tradition, much like I had come to understand about Christianity some years earlier, was something that had a really complex history and was still potentially alive, could still be used and reinterpreted in constructive and critical ways. And the reason that that was and continues to be important is not merely a question of historical interest.
0: On that note of it continuing to be relevant, one of the things that you do in your research is look at mystical thought in the context of our own contemporary moment. What is it about mystical thought that you think has this relevance in our current day?
1: You know, obviously, we live in a time of manifold, widespread, accelerating crises social ecological political and mystical writings and practices often develop at crisis points historical moments or impasses within reflection where meaning itself is sort of breaking down and mystics often seek strategies for reorienting oneself or one's sensibilities or even retrieving meaning from the breakdown or collapse of meaning making sense from a world that is losing its sense in a way that's the essence of apophatic theology that's so important to much of mysticism.
0: And within this discussion of mysticism and its usefulness in addressing various crises, would you say that Georges Bataille was one of the inspirations for your new book, Mysticism and Materialism in the Wake of German Idealism, out this year with Routledge, co-authored by the wonderful Sean Hannon, who was on our most recent episode? Would you say that George Bataille and his works played a role in this project?
1: Georges Bataille is the first person to indicate the possibility of this kind of project. Bataille saw that the fascists were making use of mystical popoy, a desire for self-sacrifice, for transgression, for self-annihilation. And they were using this as a means of mass mobilization in a sort of ersatz religion after the death of God. That's what fascism was for Bataille. And as the situation grew more desperate, he was seeking ever more radical ways to turn those weapons back against fascism. So in no small part, I think our project is inspired by that sensibility. So like Bataille, we don't want to see mysticism as a bug trapped in amber. It's something that is still potentially very much alive.
0: Incredible. So let's get into it. Can you tell us a little bit about Georges Bataille's life?
1: It would be my pleasure to talk about Georges Bataille's life because he he led such a colorful life. There are few thinkers whose thought is perhaps even outstripped by how fascinating their life was. His life was so wild that I think even if you hate his writings and don't agree with anything he said, you could read his biography and be like, wow, this is a great story.
0: Okay, that sounds amazing. Let's get into it.
1: He's a thinker of immense tensions perhaps even contradictions at some point. He's a materialist, but he's also a mystic. He's virulently atheistic, but he's also, quote, ferociously religious. He is an avowed anti-fascist, but he finds fascist aesthetics deeply appealing and even expressive of something true. He's trained as a curator and scholar of coins and currency. He's an archival numismatist, but he's almost obsessionally focused on everything that escapes or exceeds the logic of exchange. So he's this guy who learns all about coins and money, but he's totally singularly obsessed with stuff that exceeds economy and reappropriation.
0: It does seem like something we see in mysticism of, you know, Apophatic and cataphatic and arguing both sides and negating everything. But it seems like he's doing that all to every aspect of life and human experience.
1: One way to think about this would be to say for Bataille, we need an apophatic atheology. We need a way of speaking not about the presence of God, but about speaking about the death of God and all of the functions that God filled metaphysically for us absent god now that god has disappeared so he is missed it in a sense who wants to really travel into the abyss of dereliction of god's absence but there's no consolation after that it's just descent into the abyss and while there's no consolation in the sense of being overwhelmed by the superabundant love of god god sort of welcoming you into mystical union There is something kind of similar for Bataille because like Nietzsche, who was a great inspiration for Bataille, you don't pass through this dereliction and then feel sad. You laugh. You affirm all of reality in its sort of obscene meaninglessness, just as it is. So instead of at the heights and extremes of human experience transcending the world and becoming one with God. Instead, what you achieve is this intensity of experience that is justified in and of itself. It has no theological or soteriological project or aim that it's connected to.
0: He just has so much going on. His beliefs are all contradictory. He doesn't like fascism, but it's interesting, and he wants to use ideas, and and we've got atheism, but religion and mysticism, and it's all mixed together. It just seems like he's a very contradictory, complicated, tangled ball of a person.
1: Absolutely. I mean, as a young man, Bataille actually said in his journals that his desire was to turn the world upside down. And toward the end of his life, he claimed that his proudest achievement as a man looking back on his career was that he had shuffled the cards a bit.
0: Well, shuffling the cards isn't nothing, I suppose. How does he keep all of this straight? How does he organize all of these contradictions and ideas?
1: He was a very anti-systematic thinker, almost systematically anti-systematic, and he had a deep appreciation of the apophatic tradition, although in contexts that would have been totally unrecognizable to Dionysius or Eckhart.
0: So just an absolute chaotic nightmare.
1: Right. He for sure was that. He was chaos on purpose. But these were not the only oppositions or unreconciled antagonisms in Bataille's life. Even Bataille's name means battle in French. Everything about him is unreconciled antagonisms or oppositions. Even his name, in a sense, evokes this. But in his professional life, he was this very elegantly dressed, soft-spoken, well-mannered librarian. He was an archival librarian at the Bibliothèque Nationale. And in his private life, he was very different. He was a seeker of ecstasy through transgressive experiences, particularly transgressive erotic experiences. He wrote scandalous, even pornographic fiction. He was a gambler, he was a drinker, and he was a frequent patron of brothels. He even said the brothel is my church. And it was in the brothel and in a sort of experience of eroticism that both evoked desire and horror at the same time that Bataille was able to glimpse an experience of a reality that he called the sacred, right? Something wild and untamed and vertiginous and absolutely distinct from the idea of God that orders the world, that ensures justice that restitutes wrongs, that turns back the clock and redresses the evils that have been done, that redeems the world from sin. In a sense, Bataille believes that these sorts of transgressive experiences convey us to the abyss that the idea of God is designed to suppress. We are, like Eckhart, in a way, praying to be rid of God in order to get to what is truly divine. But unlike Eckhart... We don't have a a sort of superabundant, ebullient, neoplatonic vision of deity here.
0: Okay, so what do we have then?
1: For Bataille, what we have is a cosmogonic catastrophe. The world is nothing but a conflagration of meaningless energy exploding and dissipating into nothingness. And at moments of transgression like this, we have a fugitive glimpse of that. Beyond all of our calculations and our little schemes, we have this moment where we understand that life is just this explosive movement of energy, circulation and dissipation of energy. So it's pretty wild stuff.
0: (laughs) I mean, it's always the quiet ones, apparently.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: Amazing. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about biography then. You mentioned that he had a very interesting life.
1: It's honestly, it's kind of shocking there hasn't been a biopic of Bataille, but if there were, that would be an NC-17 film, I think, or X.
0: Okay, that's good to know going into this. Tell us all about him. So
1: Georges Bataille was born in 1897, and he was born in what was the Auvergne region of France into a petite bourgeois family, but he would grow up in Reims, which is a small industrial city near the Belgian border in the north of France. Um, And he had a very difficult childhood, to say the least. His father, Joseph Aristide Bataille, was a civil servant who had contracted syphilis. And by the time Georges was born, Joseph Aristide was partially paralyzed and blind and already struggling to sort of keep a grip on sanity. Georges' mother, Marie Antoinette Bataille, was also not completely stable. And according to Georges, she attempted to take her own life at least twice. So this was not a happy or stable home. And some of Georges' earliest, most potent memories are of holding his father's bedpan as his father would relieve himself. And there are journal entries where Georges describes the memory of being transfixed and frightened and sort of fixated on his father's blind stare as his eyes would roll into the back of his head as if into nothingness as he was relieving himself in the bedpan. And there are actually some places where, and I should warn your listeners, this is just the beginning of some troubling content. There'll be mentions of abuse, of torture, of prostitution. But in this case, there are some suggestions, some insinuations on Georges' part that his father may have abused him in some way. That's not clear. Georges' older brother rejected that idea, and Bataille's biographers have suggested that there are some inconsistencies in the timeline that mean that that probably didn't happen. It may just be part of Georges' literary activities that he was writing this. But in any case, by 1913 or so, the father was quite stricken with tertiary syphilis. The neurological effects were really pronounced. He was losing contact with reality. And Georges was sort of simultaneously. Deeply sympathetic to his father, but also really disgusted by him. And this contradiction or tension between attraction and repulsion and the association of these with a person who was suffering from something incurable and irreversible really had a profound effect on him. And it becomes the figure of the father, suffering, blind, dying that becomes an emblem of human mortality for batai throughout his writings but also of the death of god and it really haunts all of his writings from beginning to end 1914 is probably the big turning point in the young Bataille's life so on the eve of world war one as a teenager he apparently undergoes some sort of very intense religious conversion and is baptized into the catholic church his family was not religious his father was actually quite anti religious. So, in a way, young Georges Bataille killed two birds with one stone. On the one hand, this was an act of rebellion against the father that frightened and disgusted him. But at the same time, it allowed him to escape a sort of despairing home life and find a substitute filiation or family in the mystical body of Christ, right? If his earthly father was degraded and terrifying, he could still find a father in a way, still join into a family. But really, soon after Georges is baptized, maybe days, maybe hours, it's not clear, the Germans invade and they're advancing on Reims, And so Georges and his mother are forced to flee and abandon Joseph Aristide to the German advance, and they would never see him again alive. So this was a very traumatic experience from start to finish, and really in no small part, Bataille's writings from the late 1920s onward are colored by images and obsessions and fixations that are attempting to work through these traumas in a particular way and put them to work in a particular form of sacred practice, we could say. So after the flight from Reims, after the abandonment of George's father, he's briefly conscripted into the army, but he contracts tuberculosis and he's discharged. For about a year in 1917 to 1918, he joins the Dominicans. He becomes a Dominican novice and his aspirations are to the contemplative life. He does not want to become a parish priest. He wants to be a monk. He doesn't stay there, though.
0: I imagine not, given the background you've already given us on him, but the real question is, where does he go next? He ends up
1: enrolling in the École des Chartres to train as a medievalist and a librarian, and sometime around 1920, for reasons that are not entirely clear, he loses his faith. Now, this may have been cemented or perhaps even precipitated by his studies with the Russian emigre Lev Shestov, who was a philosopher that Batai made the acquaintance of, Batai never had a formal philosophical education, but through his acquaintance with Shestov, was able to read Plato and Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky, and probably most importantly, Friedrich Nietzsche. And it's during this time that Batai becomes really interested in Nietzsche's idea of the death of God, the idea that the function of God. That the role that God played in Western societies has become an empty space. And really, the death of God becomes the supreme intellectual and moral challenge for Bataille. It really becomes a singular point of focus. And I think this turn in his life toward Nietzscheanism makes him look back at his earlier conversion as a sort of evasion of that trauma of his young life. And really, After this, Bataille's life is sort of divided into two worlds. So he studies, he becomes a medievalist librarian, he's an archival librarian, he gets a job at the Bibliothèque Nationale, specializing in numismatics, and he's spending some of his time publishing in very respectable journals. But on the flip side of that, he's spending a lot of time drinking, gambling, frequenting brothels, staying out far too late, coming into work a bit hungover or very hungover. And his friends are concerned. And in 1925, he undergoes psychoanalysis with Dr. Adrian Borel, who was one of the doctors who would train Jacques Lacan. And this was another really big turning point in Bataille's life. So we don't know a lot about the details of Bataille's analysis, but as a part of that, Adrian Borrell gifted Bataille with some images of Leng qi, which is a form of execution that was traditionally carried out against regicidal criminals in China. So it's an image of a Chinese torture victim who is being tortured to death. We don't know exactly which image it is, but it's one of three or four that do exist, and that I don't recommend your listeners look up, but they are out there. And effectively. In these images, this man, and again, this is rather harrowing material, this man has been tied to a stake, probably drugged with some opium, and is being dismembered alive. He's been flayed, his chest is open, his organs are being removed, his legs are missing, his arms are being sawed off, and his eyes are rolling back in his head. And of course, when he saw the eyes rolling back in the head, there seemed to be this question What was he seeing in the expression? Was this agony? Was this ecstasy? Was there a possibility of some sort of ecstatic experience here? And the central focal point of his meditations, of his contemplative practice, was to meditate on these images. So this is the point in time where he was able to take his obsessions and his pathologies and really channel them into writing. They become ideas that he's pursuing through literary activities. Now, he's still drinking a lot. He's still going to brothels. But he's able to sort of balance his life a little better. And during this time, he's marginally associated with the Surrealists. And during this time, on the one hand, he's writing these pornographic novellas, the story of the eye being the most famous. And he's also becoming really interested in Marxism and the idea of reformulating materialism in terms drawn from Gnosticism, ancient Gnosticism, but also Freudian psychoanalysis and Nietzsche, the idea of a Dionysian or base materialism. Materiality as a sort of unstable third term that resists synthesis into a more complex picture of or mediated vision of reality. And so all through these years, he's also engaged in Anti fascist and communist publications.
0: Well, that certainly provides some variety in the topics he was writing about. We mentioned Bataille briefly in last week's episode with Sean Hannon when we were talking about the book that you two have written together, Mysticism and Materialism in the Wake of German Idealism. So now that we're on the topic of fascism again, can you tell us a little bit about Bataille's thoughts on fascism? So he sees
1: fascism as a religious phenomenon. And he's probably one of the first to do that. According to Bataille, very early, he's saying, look, you cannot reason with a fascist. Before you even come to the table, they've rejected that as a meaningful way to make decisions, to forge consensus. For the fascist community is something else. It's something forged through shared risk and sacrifice and death and a theater of cruelty. And so he believes that war is inevitable and he believes this very early on. So the psychological structure of fascism for Bataille is a thirst for the sacred. So Bataille believes that bourgeois life has effectively reduced or suppressed anything that doesn't fit into calculative rationality, into calculus of utility, anything that's not useful, anything that doesn't sort of match with the logic of capital is suppressed and Bataille basically says that fascism is expresses this thirst for a sacred reality that's been banished from the modern world. It's tapped into this thirst for the sacred, and leftism will have to do the same. It's not going to be enough to educate people or to even engage in sort of traditional praxis of alternative community building. There's going to have to be something that feeds into a Dionysian frenzy, because that is what has been suppressed from the world, this orgiastic spirituality. So really, it's in the 1930s that one of the strangest episodes in Bataille's life occurs. As it becomes more and more clear that war is going to happen, he was always pretty much convinced war was an inevitability, but as it becomes more and more clear that war will break out any day, Bataille actually endeavors to found a religion or to found a Gnostic cult of sorts, a secret religion, and he calls this acephal or headless. The idea was to take this thirst for the sacred, for sacrifice, for self-annihilation, for danger that fascism had tapped into and turn those weapons against fascism as a way of creating a type of community that would resist the possibility of fascism a community that is headless, right? So back to the theme of the corpus mysticum, this is a corpus mysticum with no head. There is no head in which power is concentrated or sovereignty is concentrated. And the thing that's most disturbing about this episode in Bataille's biography, obviously we don't know that much about it because it was a secret society and it's not totally clear what their activities were, but supposedly... The plan was to sort of usher in this community with human sacrifice. So there were certain rules that were instituted. They didn't shake hands with anti-Semites. They had certain dietary rules. They would meet at midnight at a tree that had been struck by lightning to read Marcel Moss and Nietzsche and the Marquis de Sade and other things. But the founding moment of this religion was to be a human sacrifice. And no one is really sure if that's true because it was a secret group. But there are several possibly apocryphal stories about how this played out. One of them is that they had somebody lined up to be the victim, but nobody could wield the knife. Nobody had the wherewithal to actually do it. The version that I heard from Jeremy Biles, which I prefer, is that all of the members of Asifal were willing to be the sacrifice, but none would wield the knife. Now, that idea is actually very interesting. The other one's like, oh, they just didn't really have the wherewithal to go through with their crazy plan. But the idea of a community made up of individuals, all of whom are willing to die, but none are willing to kill, that is actually very intriguing as the basis of an alternative form of community, maybe even the expression of Bataille's understanding of communism. So in any case, eventually, war breaks out and all of Bataille's intellectual projects it's all put on hold and a little earlier in 1938 his lover Colette Pignot dies so basically at the outbreak of the war you've got a guy in his 30s now who has worked at a frenetic pace for the past 10 years or so but his friends have increasingly abandoned him they've sort of gotten tired of his extreme ideas and then his lover has died and then war breaks out and France is occupied and so he's sort of left sitting around thinking, well, you know, what do I do? And on top of that, his tuberculosis comes back. So he's very sick. And he basically, you know, retires to the countryside. And he's moving back and forth from the sort of occupied zone in the north to the so-called free zone in France in the south. And it's during this period, in 1940 or so, that another great turning point in his life happens. And this could be described as a contemplative, mystical turn In Bataille's writings. And it has been suggested it's even a second conversion of sorts, because all of a sudden you have this emphasis on a retrieval of medieval mystical sources that was lacking in the 30s. Bataille is really interested in reading Angelo Foligno, of reading Eckhart, of reading St. John of the Cross of reading Pseudo-Dionysius as well. So he's going even further back beyond the medieval tradition as well. And it's very hard to put your finger on exactly what the project of these writings is. But during the 1940s, Batai is working on a project he calls the La Somme theologique, the Atheological Summa, as this little parody of Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica. This will be a summary of all of the Forms of atheistic experience, basically, of carrying human experience to the extremes and those moments of transgression where you experience the inbreaking of this sacred, wild, catastrophic reality beyond God, beyond human aspirations, beyond any of our calculations or needs or desires for salvation. And really, in a way, Those books, of which there are three, Inner Experience, Guilty, and On Nietzsche, those books are, in a way, very Nietzschean, because they have a paradoxical aim, right, to redeem humanity from the need to be redeemed, or as Bataille puts it, to exit the realm of projects from within project, right, to come to a place where these states of intensity, these inner states are themselves sovereign. They don't refer beyond themselves. They are meaningful in and of themselves. Or meaning not, might not even be the best word. They have their own authority, he would say. They have their own sovereign authority. They don't derive meaning from their place within some soteriological project or salvation history or rational teleology.
0: So you describe this as Bataille's sort of mystical turn, but. What does that actually mean for Bataille, who doesn't like mysticism and is looking for something that doesn't involve God in any sense?
1: So as a mystical turn, Bataille says, I hate the word mysticism, even though I'm reading these mystics. And it's because it occasions so much misunderstanding. The mystical tradition of medieval Christianity is so overladen and burdened and hemmed in by dogmatic constraints, by a desire for salvation, that they actually shy away from the truly radical implications of their experience. And so what he wants to do in these books is not to see mysticism as a fly trap in amber, maybe to get all those accretions of dogma, to chip that away and to let the experience become possible again for people who are living in a world without transcendence. So Bataille's mystical project is a form of mysticism without transcendence. He wants to experience not the presence of God, which of course is one of the classic definitions of mysticism, as you know from Bernard McGinn, is is consciousness of the presence of God. Bataille, if he is a mystic, he's a mystic of a very weird sort because he does not want to experience the presence of God. He wants to experience the absence. He wants to experience the death of God. And that needs to be an experience that can be experienced again and again in different contexts, that can be accessed again and again, because we need to be constantly on guard for Bataille from being tempted to easy forms of transcendence, to being tempted toward what he calls narcotics that will soothe our anguish. If we really want to affirm the value of ourselves and the value of the world and to fully assume responsibility for ourselves in a way, we must carry ourselves to the point of absolute anguish, where we've disabused ourselves of the possibility of being saved, and don't foresee deliverance from some god, or some Hegelian idea, or something
0: of that nature. So he's attempting to experience the absence of god, because that would confirm his belief that there is no god, whereas to attempt to experience any sort of presence would then be hypocritical. Not that he seems to mind being hypocritical, but he's still seeking some sort of experience, even though it's of nothingness. Yeah, I think it's complicated because for Bataille,
1: there's no getting rid of the radical finitude of human beings to which God has historically been an answer or a salve. Or a source of comfort or something of that nature. And because of that, Bataille doesn't think you can sort of shrug off the idea of God, right? It's not like you get to the point of atheism and you go, whew, what a relief. There's no God. We just move on with our lives. Because you're still dealing with that deep, irresolvable, and insurmountable finitude that gave birth to that idea in the first place. So you're constantly tempted to create or to appeal to God or some ersatz form of God. And what Bataille thinks you have to do is not just create something whole cloth, but to inhabit traditions in subversive ways. And he says, what I want to do in this book, Inner Experience, for instance, I want to inhabit the tradition in a way that allows me to draw on it while also distancing myself from it. And that's really what we find when he is presenting sort of an iteration of meditation on the wounds of Christ. So you'll recall, we talked about the images of the torture victim. So for Bataille, if we want to really get to this place of absolute dereliction, we have to dramatize that because we can't actually die and still be here to appreciate the fact that we're dead, right? The presence of mortality, the presence of death in our experience is as the impossible. It's something that cannot possibly enter into our experiences. But there are ways we can dramatize that, and there are ways that we can represent it to ourselves in a way that perhaps reveals to us the non revealability of death, images that militate against their own capacity to reveal, if that makes any sense at all. And so for Bataille, traditionally, deep, deep in the sort of psychological roots of what makes Christianity so appealing was. This meditation on the wounds of Christ. This opened up that kind of ecstasy. But people were afraid of the really deep, radical implications of this that actually there is no salvation, that this person just died on the cross, and that we too will just die. And that this opens up a whole new way for us to understand our place in reality and to understand the nature of what is sacred to us. So he wanted to be able to develop a form of, I guess, what we could call spiritual discipline along those lines. But like the mystical tradition, the meditations on the wounds of Christ was too laden with tradition. It was too laden with dogma. It's not possible for someone in Bataille's day or in our day to look at a crucifix with Jesus hanging on it and really have an intense experience of empathy and of the possibility of absolute dereliction, of the possibility of absolute abandonment by God and the death and disappearance of God, right? Because for us, it's always already a part of this narrative of God's self-sacrifice for the work of salvation as an act of mercy for humanity, et cetera, et cetera. And that's part of why these images of the torture victim became so useful for Bataille. He needed something resolutely human and real and beyond the sort of theological projects of Christianity. So he's attempting to offer an atheological rendition of wounds meditation by looking at this image. And he says, the young and seductive Chinese man of whom I have spoken left to the work of the executioner. I loved him with a love in which the sadistic instinct played no part. He communicated to me his pain, or perhaps the excessive nature of his pain, and it was precisely that which I was seeking, not so as to take pleasure in it, but in order to ruin that in me which was opposed to ruin. So we have a real attempt to, I think, take over annihilationist practices and to reinscribe these or re-signify these in terms of atheistic materialism. This is a form of self-negation which refuses all salvation. And both atheists and theist existentialist intellectuals hated this book. They hated inner experience. They said, you know, this is just the worst kind of drick. Gabriel Marcel, who was a Catholic and an existentialist philosopher, said, look, you are just so pretentious classing yourself among St. John of the Cross, among Meister Eckhart. You know, who are you first of all to put yourself there (laughs) and with the idea that you're correcting them somehow. But also really what Marcel says is we're looking at a description of a failed mystical experience. He experienced dereliction, desolation, and he never got consolation. He never got mystical union. He never broke through to the other side. He was never able to accept the outpouring of divine love. It didn't happen for on the atheistic side you've got Jean-Paul Sartre who says, look, If inner experience is just this intensity of experience that has its value and sovereignty only in itself, and it's not part of any project, you might as well be sunbathing or getting drunk. We just are projects. That's what it is to be a human being, is to be projected into possibilities. And for you to try to resist all of those in the name of some weird, vague, interior, sovereign experience, it's tantamount to rejecting the full weight of historical agency.
0: It's great when one work can antagonize completely opposite viewpoints, that's something special. Now would you say that those are fair criticisms of the work or would you say that they just missed what Bataille was trying to do?
1: I think in a sense these thinkers, they're not wrong in a way, right? And I'm sympathetic to certain things within Bataille's project, but really it's precisely the point for Bata- like both of those things are part of Bataille's point part of his abandonment of projects is to militate simultaneously against both theological and metaphysical models of transcendence he wants to resist the idea that human beings should be understood on the model of rationally comprehensible labor or projects There's something else, something that shouldn't be reduced to any of those projects. But that something else is nothing other than the vertiginous slipping into the void. That's the thing that's really hard to pin down here. So I think one way to think about this would be to say Bataille is sort of, while he loves Nietzsche, he's sort of a Kierkegaard character in that he rejects in a way the theology of his day. He also rejects the philosophy of his day. And there's a leap, but it's not a leap of faith. It's a leap into the abyss. It's a leap into the abyss of non-meaning, into the absence of God, and a refusal to accept anything less than that.
0: It sounds like there are so many complex ideas in his work, and so many opposites and contradictions and combating everything all at once. Is that how it actually feels to read these works? Are they difficult to get through?
1: He's very, very hard he's hard to put your finger on. He writes in a way that's deliberately designed to interrupt itself because he wants to lead language to the point where it loses meaning. But there's no theological revelation beyond that. This isn't pseudo-Dionysius where we go, okay, none of these names work, but hyper-ousiologically, we get a meaning back for these. It's just into the nothing and that's it.
0: That is so fascinating just because it's so different than what we normally see where we're normally looking at a path that leads towards enlightenment or union, greater understanding, more connection, meaning, falling into an abyss but the abyss is love or oneness and instead it's just nothing. Is there something in his writing that gives some perspective on how he saw this kind of journey? Here's
1: a very good line that I think really encapsulates a whole lot of what Bataille's writings are about, especially from 1940 onward. Life will dissolve itself in death, rivers in the sea and the known in the unknown. Nonsense is the outcome of every possible sense.
0: Okay, wow, that's powerful, and I feel like he's coming for me in some kind of way, and I don't really know how or why, but I'm suddenly very uncomfortable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I so identify with that, because the first time I read it, on the one hand, I felt like there was something very seductive about it, but also something kind of dangerous and a little frightening. And I just think that's such a testament to his ability as a writer, because that type of antagonism, horror and desire, holding those together, refusing to reconcile them, to desire to live, but also to really take hold of all of the anguish that that involves in a world without salvation, in a world where wrongs will not be righted. In a world where no one will be saved, where nothing will be redeemed, that's a tremendous responsibility and maybe an impossible task. And ever since I read it, it really had a profound impact on me. And I think thinking about that, even if you don't share Bataille's obsessions and his interest in physical degradation and in the pornographic and in torture, there's a lot to learn here, potentially. And, you know, it's very fascinating contemplative literature, in my opinion. and It has been an important touchstone for me, really, ever since I read it. It's been something that I come back to again and again and again, because it's such a fundamental challenge for me to everything, to every sort of intellectual orthodoxy.
0: I think the bit that really gets me is no transcendence, no God, no union, nothing. All there is, is nothing. But when it ends, and that abyss of nothing, there's still laughter. Right. So in a way, he gets it back,
1: right, with the idea of laughter. You're exactly right to put your finger on it. So it's not supposed to be hopeless. Or rather, it's supposed to be a hope that is beyond hope, right? The possibility of redeeming the world from the need of redemption terminates in laughter in these experiences of absolute intensity that say, you know, it's just worth it to be alive. This is good. I'm going to live this experience, and I'm going to laugh. The question of laughter is really interesting here, too. Sartre, in his very polemical review of inner experience, says Nietzsche makes us laugh. Bataille does not make us laugh. He tells us he laughs, but he doesn't make us laugh. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people who read it. It makes you feel really bad. It can make you feel really just gross and kind of nauseated and sick and tired. And he even says in, on Nietzsche, like, the people who are reading these books, this may not be good for you. These books are not for everybody. These books are for people who are going to come out of the other side of this and be able to learn to laugh with me. And it's not going to be everybody. And there are people who are going to read these books and it may leave them in a bad place. And so my initial sense that Bataille is very seductive, but also possibly dangerous, I think that's true. And I think the point about laughter is really well observed. So he rejects the idea of salvation, but in a way he gets it back with the idea that you can have this Dionysian affirmation that culminates in laughter or a sort of shattering. And that's a very physical embodied experience for Bataille. It's not a judgment being passed. When you laugh, that is an eruption of the sacred, of this wild, violent, lawless material excess that can't be contained, that refuses to be subordinated to any sort of utility or human project. And in a way, the idea that all sense terminates in nonsense, I mean, I feel like if you sat around with people talking long enough, eventually people would just start awkwardly laughing, wouldn't
0: they? (laughs) Like
1: you would devolve into literal nonsense eventually.
0: Absolutely. It's like when you say the same word over and over and over and over again, and all of a sudden you can't imagine that it ever had any sort of meaning to begin with. Now, before we devolve into ridiculousness and nonsense words, we are coming to the end of the podcast. So there is just the final question, which is an interesting one in this case, because as you have clearly illustrated, These works are very challenging, not only to read, but in their ideas, and they can cause pain and anguish and desolation in themselves. So why is it that Bataille is your favorite mystic?
1: Million dollar question. And it's a great question. I mean, I think 20, 30 years ago, several things were really very obvious to everybody. The world was getting more secular all the time. We were all getting more reasonable and more rational. Religion was on its way out. Liberal capitalism had won, and fascism and communism were defeated, effectively. They were not viable options anymore. None of those things are obvious anymore, and they became very non-obvious in a very short span of time. And I think Bataille is extremely timely in that way, because really, he's at the intersection of each of those resurgent realities in the 21st century so that's kind of a historically bound answer to that question so the big picture answer about why Bataille is my favorite mystic is that i think he is one of the very few people perhaps with the exception of nietzsche who attempted to explore what human existence would be like is like without transcendence without salvation Who really wanted to understand, okay, if that's off the table, what does human life look like? How can we disabuse ourselves of all of the little tricks and narcotics that we've used to deceive ourselves into thinking that a life that we actually resent is worth living? And I think Batai is one of the people who most sort of fearlessly and doggedly pursues a vision of a world without transcendence. And whether or not you agree with that, or find that to be advisable or good or bad. You know, I think it's a very interesting intellectual project. And of course, from a biographical perspective, Bataille's the guy that really got me to look at this tradition anew. He is the thinker who said, you do not have to play by the rules of the Enlightenment if you want to read these figures, and you don't have to play by the rules of historicists. You don't have to look at this as wildly irrational or dogmatic thinking. You don't have to think about it as a fly trap in amber where if you can just figure out the composition of the minerals that surround it, you've basically got it figured out, there's nothing else to say about it. This is somebody that awakened me to the possibility of reading these figures in ways that were creative and possibly subversive, and that was very exciting.
0: Amazing. Zeke, thank you so much for joining me today and for telling me all about Georges Bataille.
1: Thank you, AJ, so much for having me. I really enjoy the podcast a lot, and it was just a delight to be invited to be a part of it. Thank you.
0: That's very nice of you to say, and it has been wonderful to have you. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at MyFaveMystic, and join me next time when I speak to Delphine Konzelman about William of Saint-Terry.